Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 37. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia and Ken. Donna won't be joining us this week as she's vacationing with her family, but we look forward to having her back on next week's episode. Our show this week is very Parisian. In addition to discussing the more than typical number of news stories coming from Paris in the last couple of weeks, we also have two interviews to share with a Paris-based architecture firm and a Paris-based artist. First up, we'll be sharing my recent conversation with Nicholas Moreau and Hiroku Kusunaki, winners of the Guggenheim Helsinki competition. And later in the show, we'll listen to my talk with Xavier Valhein, the artist behind the Architectones architectural installation, and Francois Perrin, who organized the projects in Los Angeles. Before we get started, we have a message from this week's podcast sponsor. Today's podcast is sponsored by BQE Software, the makers of ArchiOffice. ArchiOffice is the only office and project management software built with the needs of architects in mind. It will help you manage people and projects while you focus on designing great architecture. And for a limited time, all startup architecture firms that have been established within the last 24 months qualify for two free licenses of ArchiOffice online for an entire year. Go check it out at bqe.com forward slash startups. All right, Ken, how's your week been? It's been pretty interesting. Uh, I finished up my permit drawings and had a pre-bid walkthrough for my uh, butcher's project on Monday. We have a bid opening next Friday for that project. So I'm putting together an addendum for that project. And then I had an interesting contact from a, um, a local neighborhood organization looking to pair an architect or design professional with a food truck that I, strangely enough, happen to frequent when I uh, often near my Y. And uh, they're looking to do a little bit of a um, commercial kitchen with a takeout component. So it's been interesting this past week. So Nice. It's a meatless truck? No, it's not a meatless. Meatful? No, it's not. <laughs> Actually, yeah, they have meat and uh, vegetarian. But it's interesting because um, they do omelets. And uh, that's pretty much it. So they keep it really simple. Um, and they have a good you know, comfort food. And it's great to, when you're work done working out at the Y to come out and, and recharge with some protein. So omelet truck. Yeah. Oh, that sounds pretty good. I have, I don't think I've ever yeah. seen an omelet truck before. Ken, maybe if you get in the good graces of this omelet truck, you could then get so many more projects from all the other expanding food trucks that are looking to go into brick and mortar. <laughs> I imagine they're like a very tight knit kind of community of, of truck food people and they all kind of like know each other. So you could be like the go-to guy like, oh yeah, you know, the vegan meat guy. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like Let's get him. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's my hope. I, last summer, I went to one of the food truck fair, and I really heavily marketed that uh, event and wasn't able to make it there this year, but uh, I'm trying to make those connections. I think that's uh, a good place to start because they almost always want to transition from a food truck to a sit-down restaurant if they haven't already. Yeah, which is probably a pretty difficult transition to make. But if they can do it, then like it's kind of a, a big success for everybody. Can do you just take the wheels off? Or yeah, you could just you could just put the truck on cinder blocks. Yeah, yeah. Get some folding chairs, generator for some lights. <laughs> done and done. That's what the taco truck near my house pretty much does. It could qualify as a impromptu pavilion pop up. Somebody should make like a restaurant district that is just like a long parking lot where you can just park your food truck, There's turn a, it into a brick and mortar during the during the day, and then at night, you know, when the bars close, you can just take off and take your restaurant with you and serve. The drunk people of the city, wherever they happen to be. Drone delivery directly to the drunk people. Ah, drone. Food <laughs> yes, drones. Food drones. That's next. Amelia, how was your week? This week was pretty good. 
The 4th of July celebration, despite happening in like the weirdest feeling America times of equal batterings of images of Confederate flags and rainbow flags, it was a very, very good holiday <laughs> celebration on my part. I've spent it the uh, fireworks scenario of at least uh, watching from a particular platform in this public park in the city of LA where you can see around in like this 360 panorama of all of the different valleys in Los Angeles or more or less. And you can see all of the both formal and informal fireworks shows going on at once. And I don't remember exactly which Terminator movie it is, but it reminds me of the beginning of some Terminator movie where like you just look out over this urban scape and it just looks like a total apocalypse. Like all of these little fires are being started every where there's small explosions. You're not really sure where anything is coming or going from, but it just looks like the end of the world. But in a good way, in a freedom way. That's a great way to experience the 4th <laughs> of July in LA. A friend of mine sent me a video that somebody took from way up high somewhere in LA. It might have been from a drone, actually, just showing fireworks going off everywhere. And it it, it is really, it's like a war scene. Yeah. And you get to tell, like, even in the smallest ways, certain cities can distinguish themselves based on their firework displays. Like Pasadena's firework display is like just just a little bit too perfect and like quaffed and neat. And then like there's this things like happening by Dodger Stadium that are just like out of this world and so over the top. And then there's like a sad piddling thing in downtown that is like trying and like almost there, but not quite that spectacular. It's great. It's a lot of fun. Did you uh, have a good 4th of July? I did. Yeah. Spent the weekend uh, with my kids and my niece and nephew. Uh, my wife was out of town. And uh, yeah, it was great. We went, watched a uh, baseball game. It was very American, very American weekend. Mm. It was great. I, I did not light off any fireworks off the top of my head and die, which apparently is a thing these days. <laughs> From like literally balancing a firework on top of your head yeah, and lighting it? You didn't read that news? Oh, somebody, no. Somebody at a party, I guess he was pretty drunk. He uh, wanted to light a firework off the top of his head and it instantly killed him. Oh, my God. There's always stories like this on July 5th. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, just I'm, as American as the holiday as the uh, hospital bills that come out of people doing stupid things to themselves. Yeah. As long as I'm never in one of those kind of July 5th news stories, I'll, I'll be happy. <laughs> Canadian, so patriotic former Canadian gets uh, hit by a firework. Actually, speaking of Canadian, Canada Day was on July 1st. <clears throat> and we were fortunate because there's a uh, there's a country club by our house that has July 4th fireworks uh, displays a few days early before July 4th every year because they've got a big party. And uh, so we got to watch the fireworks displays from our backyard literally exploding right over our house. And that was pretty great on Canada Day. So I got to celebrate both countries this year. You're like, haha, I'm tricking you into celebrating Canada Day in the purpose of using California-based yeah. fireworks. Yeah. <laughs> what an American way to start a show so much having to do with French news. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, ironic. Yeah. Wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> Just need some hot dogs. <laughs> right. Exactly. So yeah, there's been a lot of news coming out of out of France these days. Most recently being this rather dramatic Paris-based riots from taxi drivers against Uber Pop, which is basically just French Uber. That taxi drivers turned quite violent and kind of decided to both walk out on current passengers and also start violently attacking Uber drivers, disrupting a lot of traffic in the city and leaving people kind of stranded trying to get to the airport and all these other like classic transportation difficulties. We had Nicholas who posted the, the news to Arconnect and he included a bunch of posts by Courtney Love, who was kind of just by happenstance, like was caught in the <laughs> middle of all this fray. So that was also just a hilarious kind of focal point to chart the progress of the various riots and like the and the violence that was going on through Courtney Love's social media, basically. 
But the actual riots, I mean, we haven't, have we seen riots like this taking place elsewhere in the world because of Uber? There, I know there have been a few, but nothing, I don't think it's ever gotten this intense in the U.S. But it's certainly crazy to watch these things happen, especially when the French government is just trying to figure out what to do. Technically, Uber Pop, as it's called in France, but it's basically the equivalent of Uber, has been banned in Paris, but it, they basically just continued operating. Anytime they get fined, Uber is just like, we'll pay the bill, it's fine, and they continue going around. But apparently they've just said, well, we'll keep operating until the French highest court says we have to get out. And so it's a, it seems like a very intense atmosphere to be either an Uber driver or a taxi driver in Paris right now. Uber Pop, is that like Uber or is it actually the um, Uber's official name in, in Paris? It is Uber's official name in Paris. Okay. So it is, yeah, it is all part of the same company. And that's I think that's why they can kind of afford to to just pay off all these fees that the Uber drivers are accruing. I think they changed the name initially because they were trying to maybe differentiate themselves and not just be Uber, but be, I think initially they tried to go for Uber cab and that was too confusing. The people didn't know whether they were Uber or they were a taxi cab. And so they went with something a little bit more different, which I guess Uber, they settled on Uber pop. What do you think about this, Ken? You know, it's interesting. <laughs> Have either of you had an experience riding in a taxi in Paris? Yes. No. Ah, when I was first married, we spent a fair amount of time in Paris. And when we got to the city, for some reason, we had an easier time getting a cab to the hotel. But then when we were going from our hotel to Charles de Gaulle, we had the hotel pick us, uh, get us a cab and we get in the cab and the, and the cab driver spoke English to us. So we were going to the train station. So we were going to Montparnasse and we were going to take Montparnasse because it was right in Charles de Gaulle. So he said, oh, okay, fine. And he's trying to convince us the whole way there in English that he can get us there just as quick rather than having to deal with the train and it wasn't going to be that much more. And I said, no, we just prefer to take the, the train. So we get to the train station. All of a sudden, he doesn't speak English anymore. Mm. <laughs> and I had no idea how to pay him. So I kept pulling out money and he wouldn't stop speaking in French. And I wasn't getting out of the car to get my bags. Because if I figured if I got out of the car and uh, tried to get my bags, he was just going to take off and take our bags with him. So I just kept pulling out more and more money until he shut up and got out of the car and got our bags. It's funny because that here are these guys who are saying, you know, they're getting hurt. And a lot of times they hurt themselves just by not being, you know, customer service oriented. But I happen to agree with them on the merits. These guys pay a lot of money for those medallions or those licenses. And to have a another organization who doesn't have that same burden on them that can operate outside of and deliver people around and take them wherever they need to go. And, and it's really screwing these independent medallion payers who pay several thousands or thousands and thousands of dollars to have the right to, you know, shuttle people around. And here there's this other organization coming and doesn't have that same burden. So I actually kind of side in some weird way with the with the cab drivers in Paris. I think that it is, it is a problem that they're skirting the the kind of the regulations that they're forced to kind of abide by. Well, it does seem also like an issue of just not consistent authority, because not only are the Taxi drivers clearly pissed off and to the point of inciting violent protests or violent riots, but they're also not really getting any institutional support from the government that is still technically on their side simply by not allowing Uber. So it's like in this weird spot where they're they're not being supported, but they're also not being accused. They're just like kind of left out to, on their own where they're technically, the, the law says, yeah, we don't allow Uber here, but then 
everything just keeps going on as normal. I'd like to see this just kind of a global context because clearly France is not isolated and difficulties of dealing with these services that are not regulated, encroaching on highly regulated service industry businesses. And this seems to be like just tinderbox at this point, like where we keep getting these stories of, of stuff erupting. So to try to compare it to other situations in the US and, uh, and throughout Europe and elsewhere in the world where Uber has kind of taken up, it might be interesting to try to figure out why here it gets more violent than somewhere else, what keeps it from getting violent in other areas, how the different taxi industries otherwise operate and how they can kind of, which ones are the best suited to kind of take on Uber or at least like be defended against Uber. It just seems at this point that they're really getting nowhere by just being more violent. Yeah, I think it's a lot easier to side with technology in this case than with the taxi drivers by looking at it from the outside. I think, you know, if you're a taxi driver or in the family of a taxi driver, it would be extremely frustrating. Personally, though, the way I see it is, I mean, there are so many business models right now that are being disrupted by by startups uh, utilizing technology to make things more efficient and work better. But obviously, we're going through a lot of growing pains in the process, eventually we're going to end up settling somewhere in between the traditional way of doing things and this new way of doing things because there's clearly problems with both. So, you know, I think it's good that there are voices expressing concern about, you know, from each side. I don't know if violent protesting is the way to do it, but it is going to be exciting to see how a lot of these business models adapt to new technology. Because, I mean, from my experience with Uber, I love it. I know people that have actually driven or drive for Uber and they love it. It seems to work for everybody, but you know, it's, it's new. So we'll see how it evolves. You know, I did my first Uber in New York City because I was fearful of it. I had heard horror stories. And then, you know, when you guys were using it in Atlanta, it kind of took away the fear that um, I had of getting this ridiculous bill. So I used it in New York when I was in New York uh, a few weeks ago. One of the things I noticed, and I think I'm correct in saying this, at least from the appearance of the driver seemed to be a livery cab driver who also was operating Uber as well. So that might be the hybrid that you're talking about, where there's, you know, if I'm not on call picking up somebody, here's my other opportunity to pick up uh, another fare if it's just a short fare. Yeah, a lot of these drivers are kind of independent contractors that are working for, you know, Uber, Lyft, private car services. You know, that that's one way of, of this business evolving. Another way is that, you know, like in LA, they recently, the taxi cab organization, I forget what it's called uh, officially, has announced that they are going to integrate technology similar to Uber for the taxis. These old businesses need to catch up technically. But, and there, there's probably a reason why taxi drivers need to spend so much money for, you know, a, a, is it a medallion? Is that what you're calling it? Or, or a, uh, a license? There probably is a reason, you know, and the fact that these Uber drivers do not have to do that, we may realize, you know, in the coming years that that was uh, short-sighted. Yeah, there's no one who, other than defending the rights of current taxi drivers and their right to a fair wage and their ability to compete in the market, there's no argument that the w old way of doing things is better. <laughs> like, it's just, there's no institutional, inherent institutional value to the way the taxi system was set up, other than the obvious, like, protections of the individual laborers who are getting certain regulations or are covered by the company that they work for. But the actual basis of the technology and how the company is run can drastically adapt without kind of threatening any, like, actual better model that is in case in the old one. So it's kind of like, I mean, there's really no excuse in these scenarios. We also just posted to the news, um, I believe yesterday, announcement that Uber is kind of or the CTO of Uber is going to start a waste management on-demand app pickup system. So kind of similar to instead of just picking up, getting picked up by a car, you would get your trash picked up in a somewhat on-demand fashion and just taken away. And people are trying to think of like the knee-jerk response of people who are not 
into Uber doing this, who are opposed to Uber kind of trying to take on this or not Uber in particular, but this kind of Ubering of of this business think that like, well, no, then I can't release my trash to just like the free market. That's crazy <laughs> that they trust so much in the old system that there simply can't be a way to improve it. That That's something that seems strange to me when we've seen so much other things improved by a similar treatment. Well, I think one really good precedent for the argument um, against new technology is the taxi system in in London. The taxi drivers there are required to memorize the city entirely. So you, you just need to give an address in anywhere in the city and they will know exactly how to get there. And there's no, well, I mean, I don't think we're there yet with technology to, you know, to understand a city at that deep of a level, you know, with shortcuts and, you know, personal reading of the user. Maybe, you know, a taxi driver realizes you're just getting in from the airport and you're a visitor and you might want to take like a more scenic route. When I was in London, I took both Uber and the taxis and the black taxis and the black taxis were much better overall. I totally imagine like in a future scenario, in the same way that you can go to a, a city and pay a premium to take a ride around in a horse-drawn carriage, at some point you will be able to decide, like there may be that model of the black cabs who are incredibly specialized and personalized and have an incredible in-depth amount of knowledge into the city that they're navigating. And then you also have the Ubers. So you decide what kind of trip you want to make. Do you want to make a trip around this historic district where your driver knows like everything there is to know about that area and can impart that knowledge to you? Is that the differentiator that you're willing to pay a premium for? Or do you simply just want to get from A to B? And right now they're kind of meshed in the same, they're all referred to as like taxi drivers, but maybe that just needs to differentiate at a certain point. And certainly if they keep threatening taxis, they'll have to do that. There's so many analogies. I mean, there's, you know, do you do you spend your time reading and looking at a website or do you go out and buy a book? And in the world of publishing, you're seeing a clear distinction now between print and digital. And there's value in both on both ends. So I think, you know, I think this this type of new culture that we're in is extending into all different types of businesses and industries. Yeah, as you're talking, I'm thinking about all of the the potential problems and all the issues and all the good all the good things. So like when I get an Uber, I knew what my fare was going to be. I knew, at least within a certain range, I had an understanding of where the fare was going to be. You get in a cab, you don't know. And if you want to get to a, someplace directly, you don't have any guarantee that the cab driver is going to take you to your destination in the most direct way. And therefore, you know, your charge goes up in a cab. The other issue is, is that, you know, is this a way of, I can see in some way of, you know, where in New York City, where many cab drivers are often foreign, you know, this could potentially be a way of not engaging a certain type of uh, a driver that you may not want to uh, make. So you can see somebody using Uber and trying to kind of stay out of a certain, you know, there's all these stereotypes about certain types of drivers in New York City that you can try to avoid by using Uber. I mean, you know, there's all these different things that you could see people, you know, who have the means kind of um, circumnavigating some racial biases or ethnic biases. But at the end of the day, the, the nice thing about Uber is that it's it's a technology that makes your choice more accessible. And I think part of the problem with, you know, cab drivers is that one most often hurts thing about a driver in New York City who drives a cab is that they are unapproachable. They're rude. They're obnoxious. They're horrible drivers. And I think they have to change some of those facets of their organizational strategy to kind of, you know, get away from those issues. I've actually had cab drivers verbally 
assault me when getting into Ubers. And, you know, that kind of behavior is definitely not making me empathize more with their uh, fight. But going back to what you were saying about knowing what you're getting when you get into an Uber, you know, I have a theory and I don't know if it's just paranoid or not, but I have a theory that because Uber uses its own mapping and GPS system in their in their app. And I think that they intentionally take you sometimes on a longer route to get to where you're going, because I Every time I get into an Uber, I open up Google Maps or Waze, depending on where I am, to see exactly how long it's going to take because those apps are really accurate. And more often than not, Uber's app will take the driver a different way that takes a lot longer. So you can always open up one of those apps and just tell your driver that you'll uh, give them instructions on how to get, get to where you're going. Just a little tip. But before we move on, I just want to say that I'm really, uh, I'm bummed that Donna couldn't join us for this because she has very strong opinions on this topic of, of Uber and the situation in Paris. And I'm sorry that we cannot include her opinions in on this conversation, but maybe we'll get an opportunity to talk about that in an upcoming episode. So moving on, what's up next on the news list, Amelia? We also have the pretty exciting and also divisive news from Paris being that Herzog and Demeron's Tour Triangle, which I'm sure I should be pronouncing in a in a uh, French accent and I'm just doing it no justice, but um, their Tour Triangle has been approved. And this project is very controversial because it simply is very tall and it kind of peaks at, at the border or at the uh, boundaries of Paris's height restrictions that were kind of loosened and just and more or less ignored around 2010 when they started get, being a little bit lax with them. Ironically, the height restrictions were put in, I believe at the end, in the, um, the late 70s, after the uh, Tour Montparnasse building was constructed and just was like by far the tallest building in Paris and people just universally hated it. And so they put in this height restriction on new buildings that has lasted up until pretty much 2010. And now we have this new glass pyramid structure by Herzog and de Meron that is going to be put in the area. Um, it's going in actually in the same arrondissement as Tour Montparnasse, which I believe is the 15th arrondissement. Again, my pronunciation, feel free to lance me in the comments about <laughs> however I'm pronouncing these French words, which is strangely like both home to Tour Montparnasse and also known as like the high rise district and also Paris's most populous area. So it's a really interesting space or general neighborhood to be locating what is effectively a giant office tower, but just otherwise shaped in this kind of nouveau ziggurat thing. There's been a really interesting conversation on ArcConnect around not necessarily the just the design of the building um, as this giant glass, very tall, very city skyline disrupting structure, but specifically discussing the way it meets the street and the, at least based on the renderings that we have, how the kind of street culture and the ground has been affected by erecting this giant thing. People are pretty, are on either side of the fence really about it, that some people see that as as relatively promising for a building that huge and trying to make comparisons to, say, walking past the Empire State Building in an otherwise very dense, tall city such as New York, while others are just kind of saying that this is, you know, completely hopeless. It's it's a giant molehill <laughs> that we can't ignore and that it's really doing nothing to engage with the street below. So I'm not sure this project is, it's definitely not sure that it's actually, that it may truly get built as we see it, but it's certainly going to make a huge impact on the Paris skyline. Ken, so when were you in Paris and what was your impression of like how both the city felt to just walk around while also being seen from a kind of iconic far away perspective where you can see the whole skyscrapers at once and all this, all the city at once? You know, my my recollection of it, it's been over 15 years ago, but it was a, it was an amazing city to to walk around. Not a great city for someone trying to use public transit if you don't 
uh, obviously, if you don't speak French, but just to get around by foot, it, it was beautiful. And walking up down, up and down the Champs Elysees, and and seeing all of the the wonderful streets and architecture, it was just fantastic. And you know, I don't have a problem with this building. I think I have a problem with the presentation of the renderings. And and again, I guess most of my problem has to do with you know the comments before it's even built. I would imagine it would be frustrating to be a high-profile architect doing anything like this nowadays, but. Who knows, the mayor just goes over their head and doesn't even affect them at all. It does totally seem like grasping at straws to fight over, right? It's like you're going to take a single image and then just pick whatever isolated element you feel is like worth getting on a soapbox on and then just being extremely just fighting about it with no real backup. But I think what is really interesting about this story is not necessarily like the design of the building, but simply how people are either how people are interpreting their understanding of the building based on how it impacts the overall idea of Paris. You know, obviously Paris has a very iconic skyline. And as soon as you see that Eiffel Tower, you are immediately conjuring this idea, whatever idea you do have of Paris. And, you know, there's criticisms of cities that have these more or less immortal urban histories that they're kind of thought of as these metropolitan cities that are never going to be questioned of their authority in like the world, in the world as a world capital. And you have this certain idea when you think of Paris that is related to that. It's impossible to kind of experience just objectively. When you go to Paris, you're like experiencing Paris with a capital P and you're going around and you have this idea that it has to live up to something that has been built far beyond the time when you ever came there. So I feel like people are have struggling with this thing that does kind of stick out on the landscape and is kind of a weird anomaly, but it's only because they're holding on to this idea of the city that is more or less prepackaged and not necessarily maybe not something that needs defending, like whether it needs to stay a certain way or not shouldn't be taken for granted, I don't think. Well, it's interesting that we're having this discussion right after we're talking about the Paris riots and how an old guard, an entrenched old guard is resisting new technology to kind of move forward. And this kind of plays in that same vein where how do you grow? How do you continue to grow as a country as a ci- or as a city, as a country, if you don't move forward in your architecture. I'm sure that the same kinds of comments were there when the Eiffel Tower was built. I mean, how do you advance as a society? People hated the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. So <laughs> and now it's become this beloved thing that you can't even have a building that's in a comparable size. It doesn't even shake out to be similar in ter- form unless you, you know, frame it correctly uh, to get that. But it seems like this is just the next evolution, like the Uber pop is the next evolution. But, you know, it's weird how Europe is working right now. They seem so stuck in a past that is so romanticized. And I'm trying to figure out, you know, they've been around for so long and they moved the planet so far forward in terms of uh, just all kinds of thinking. And yet they want to get entrenched in an old thought. That's a really... Astute observation. The comparison between the new tower and the Eiffel Tower and Uber and taxis. I can't believe I hadn't even made that connection myself before. I don't know. The rendering of this building seems to me like, I don't know if it's accurate or kind of like a little egotistical because it seems like the building just seems so imposing on the city in that main rendering that Herzog and Demeron have released. It doesn't seem to be that sympathetic with the citizens of of Paris, at least. At least, you know, the rendering portraying this gigantic building. I also, I'm curious about the decision to make it a triangle, you know, considering that the other, you know, the the most historic architectural element of the city is the Eiffel Tower, which is a triangle of sorts. The two shapes I don't feel are very complementary with each other, even though I'm, you know, I'm a huge fan of Herzog and Demeron's work. I think it's a nice building, but I question the context. 
Well, it certainly doesn't look like any, both from the design of just the actual image. I think someone related it to a wedge of cheese on the landscape. That it, now it, just, it all makes sense. Now it all makes sense, right. It does just look like it's imposed there, but then also on this level of the street that there's just kind of this flat perpendicular exchange between the wall and the ground. And there's really not much porosity or, in, or transition space really in that area or really accommodation to the people on the street. But also, I mean, this thing, it's not even really necessarily, it's an office park. It's a place for offices and there'll be like other amenities for like visiting business people and such, but it's not posing as like, at least from the get-go as a treasured cultural institution, which the Eiffel Tower, of course, didn't have to worry about housing people, that it was much more of a, you know, a, a sign of engineering marvel and a testament to engineering marvel. And this is much more like, this doesn't have as much room and is a little bit, it would be a little bit premature to just assume that this would have the same iconic status as something like the Eiffel Tower. You know, the the one thing that struck me is that there's um, somewhere in the post, rather um, on the first page of the post, David posted a couple of images that kind of it lessens the impact of that first image so i wonder why like you were saying why is that image the one on the front at the top the one that got released as kind of representative of the building when the you know the street view is so much more interesting and the the larger aerial view from like a plane is much more interesting to look at but then i think about the first one the first image and that's probably the view that most people will see because this is this will be one of the taller buildings in the city. So, you know, I have always wondered about why one particular rendering over another. And I'm always fascinated by how people really take off on that one and, you know, other ones come out and they are better representative of the project than the first one. So, Or that if you can even have a, an image any single or series of images that are representative of a project when it doesn't exist yet. You know, it's like, there's no, I mean, at least, I, I don't know, maybe there's some little kiosk on the Seine that has already doctored postcard images of Paris' skyline, including this thing, and making it look all look very <laughs> romantic and like all dressed up in lights. But a uh, future postcard shop. Yes. Yeah. Speculative postcards of which you get from the future. You can send postcards to the future. Taken from the iPhone 8. <laughs> Just the top of the line camera. Oh, yeah. Those days. Oh, yeah. I kind of just feel like, you know, you'll choose whichever rendering you feel fits your point best. And at least in terms of us for choosing this cover image, it just simply made sense because it not only situates the the fromage wedge with most of the, with other taller buildings in the background, but also the Eiffel Tower. And I think that was a very conscious choice to kind of include that. And I'm sure Herzog and Demerone made this rendering specifically so that they could kind of have that comparative stance of having the, the big cheese in the front and the tiny little, by comparison, Eiffel Tower in the back. Little cigarette. well should we move on to our interviews let's do it all right well first up we have a conversation that i had with nicholas moreau and hiroku kusunoki from moreau kusunoki architects paris-based architecture firm that as we discussed on last week's episode was recently announced as the winner of the guggenheim helsinki competition very controversial very high profile competition So I spoke with them for a little while last week to talk to them about their initial impressions, what attracted them to the competition, their thoughts on competitions in general in response to some of the controversy that was elevated through this uh, very popular competition. And uh, yeah, so why don't we go ahead and listen to that now? 
So what originally attracted you guys to this competition? What excited you about the Guggenheim Helsinki competition when you first heard about it? First, it's a, it's a, we knew Finland because we were in, in Helsinki in 2009. So we knew the site and we knew already a bit of, of Finnish culture. And we knew also Guggenheim because we have been in Guggenheim, New York, uh, 10 years ago. So all of this made that we were... It looks very exciting since it was kind of the, one of the best leading museum and also uh, Finnish culture, which is very keen uh, into the design and very uh, they have a very high culture of architecture and design. An open mind and very curious to try something new, a new lifestyle. So this is a, like a kind of ideal combination to think about the future museum. It's like a good exercise. So anyway, we couldn't not doing so can you talk a little bit about the inspiration behind the design of, of the museum? Yeah, we, we, our, our first ideas were, were how to make an open and transparent museum and how to make it connected with the city, how to give the chance to the, the Helsinki people, but tourists also, to have a very fluidity from the outside to the inside, how they could came into the building as a really as it would be a part of their daily life or part of their of their city. So that was one of the first ideas. That's why that's why it leads us to go to the pavilion approach. Which is yep. In fact we try to spread out uh, as much as program on the ground floor because this site was located in a port. And uh, the port is, is, a, is a very important identity of this city, of Helsinki. The many people to, still today discovering this city by the big ferry arriving from this port. And the site is next to, just next to this port. And, and just nearby, there is old market, an open sky market, cultural district. So it's really surrounded by many very rich outdoor activities. So we like to link all of them together. So we wanted to place this Guggenheim on this path of the, the people living in Helsinki and also for the tourists, not as a, like a destination terminal of the like, weekend to just uh, meet a friend or having business meeting or just for reading books, not for spending whole day in museum. It, it can be... Hmm. It, was, it was an idea of how to make a museum as a social role in the society, in the community. It was, it leads us also into the, for, to, to design that and that's why we developed this idea of the in between space where it's a free ticket access and where where everybody might be able to 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 go through or to stop by either to go to to the restaurant to the cafe to the shops uh, to the workshop area or you have also Just the auditorium there. so that's that's our leading uh, ideas so it's a very public space yes yeah so one of the most dominant characteristics of the museum, of your design, visually, is the color. Can you talk a little bit about the choice to make it a black museum? Yes. In fact, this is not... Uh, the color of black is come from the material. We didn't try to make the building black. It's come from the choice of material. We choose this material, chaired timber, because it's... The one of the very familiar facade material for Finland people, they have a cottage and island that they use this material because it's quite resistant against water and fire and quite uh, easy for maintenance. And by chance, in Japan, we have this culture of, called yakisugi. And we really like to use very simple material like wood uh, with quite traditional wise method to transform 
to something quite intelligent material and all this method can be like shared because so simple and easy and quite familiar so we wanted to maybe use this project symbolic project to activate local industrial which is in, in Finland of the forest industry of Finland because Finland wish to activate their very rich forest resources called Finn forest and so we try to apply a kind of scheme which exists actually in Japan also the, the, the idea also is that it is it's one of the image we use in the competition is the, the image of the burnt forest and there was this idea of saying like after the, the forest is burnt it grows stronger so this image illustrates how the use of uh, wood and this char- charred wood is part of a process which is a circular process that you harvest the forest and you replant trees and all this is a kind of a positive uh, eco- uh, cycle. So it's not only the facade, actually the, the, the structure also is made of wood. The beam that you can see in one of the images of the galleries is like 24 meter span beam and it, it's made of blue laminated wood. So it's, it's, a, it's a global approach about the, the, the wood in the, in the project. Also, maybe there is an idea that this chart would might there be something very uh, sensual with this uh, texture that it, it ages and it when you approach there is this grain which is very particular. So we believe it brings a certain depth and interest in the project also. Mm-hmm. In the last few years, we've watched a growing debate regarding the value of competitions and the potential exploitation of architects and designers. The scale and popularity of this competition brought this discussion to a fever pitch. What are your thoughts on architecture competitions in regards to this competition and in competitions in general? Well, maybe I, w- I would I would say, uh, of course, we prefer to be like uh, to be paid to when we work. <laughs> and the, 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 the architect condition is very hard worldwide. And that's 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 that for sure. And that's why in France, for example, there is a competition system with a public competition system, which is very generous and very good for architecture, which is which is first first uh, selection based on your portfolio. And then they choose like four or five architects. Uh, ideally, uh, most of the jury try to take a young architect, well-established company, international company, and a local architect in order to, to create uh, the possibility to everyone to come with ideas. So I, I think we should really defend. I think this model is, is, quite, is quite nice and quite unique in Europe. Uh, actually, many architects in the world, are the one who knows the French system, are really appreciate that uh, respect a French government give. For the Guggenheim, it was it was an open competition and uh, it was with high risk. Yeah. yeah, but at the same time, the program like Guggenheim and also in Helsinki, this kind of subject are most of the time reserved for very few star architects today. So this chance was like exceptionally open to every architect in the world. Yes. This is a very good exercise for everyone anyway. So it's function like a workshop internationally done. So I don't know, there is, of course, behind there is serious problem, economic problem, much of invest was made, but intellectually it's very positive. Very positive. Uh, also for Guggenheim, it was it's a quite it's a very new experience. To normally they are they commission architects or they use or they work with famous architects and with a few few of them. And that time 
thanks to the fact that they work with Helsinki people, with Finland people, they had to somehow renew their way of thinking and and make it like a more like open process, democratic process. And that's probably something that comes from the Finnish way of thinking. Sure. Uh, and that's probably good for the architecture and the museum or the way of thinking at a museum. It, it, it's an opportunity to, to change to change and to think differently, probably. Well, speaking of the Guggenheim and their role in architecture, what is your opinion of the of the so-called Bilbao effect that started with the Guggenheim in, in Bilbao, Spain? Um, probably the, the, the people from Guggenheim might be more able to speak about that because they have, they have all the data. But if we think about Helsinki specifically, uh, for sure there is an effect. When, you, when there is this kind of very great museum with great collections, there is an attraction. Uh, and that's for sure that, that, that uh, there is numbers that exist that can prove how it works. In, in, in particular, Helsinki is part of a Baltic area, which is a real active region connected with Europe, with Russia. St. Petersburg is just one hour. It's, a, it's a, also a hub going to Asia, to China and Japan. So there is real potential of, of improving the quality of the I would say like tourist experience. Mm-hmm. When, when most of, actually, when we came the first time in Helsinki, we took a boat from Stockholm. So we arrived by boat and it's part of the Scandinavian tour that you do. So for sure, this kind of uh, very uh, interest, very unique project attract uh, tourism and, and uh, increase uh, the economic growth. It doesn't seem like self-promotion is a high priority for your practice. We do a lot of research into into practices and architecture. And, and these days, you know, with the internet, a lot of firms are really pushing to get their work and their brand out there. But it seems like you have made an effort to not self-promote as much as many other firms do these days. I'm, I'm wondering if that's an intentional decision. Uh, it, it, it's, it's an intention. We we are we, we we believe that we are, actually our firm is uh, is young. We have a uh, few experience, very few experience, and we uh, the question of, for example, the website. We decided we decided to open the website only two months ago, but we were not sure at all. To we didn't want to make it, but we had to make it because some stuff appeared on Google with uh, that that showing a bad image of us. So we had to do it. But ideally, we we, we would prefer not to to put on the web. Because we thought that the problem is when you show your 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 work, you people is expecting to do what they seen on the web. They, they, if you do one thing, they want to re- you to repeat the same. Mm. So we don't want to be like a with a stamp. So as a young emerging practice, you don't want to be typecast as uh, designing a certain type of architecture. Yes, yeah. yes, and also it's too early for us. You started your firm in in two thousand eleven. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So, so it's only four years old. So what impact do you think this win will have on your practice? Ah, we will see. <laughs> but I, it's quite a delicate question because uh, what happened, the, the, the image of Guggenheim is still very strong on many Anglo-Saxon country. Not compared to Anglo-Saxon countries, the, the influence in Japan and France is quite different. Architecture, universe is sometimes quite close. Actually, we are just observing. No, we, we can we can see that it's it's a real impact in terms of uh, media exposure that we, we receive call from you. 
<laughs> yeah, well, your name has uh, quickly shot up into the media landscape among among architects. That's for sure. Yes, that's a direct result, and I don't. I, we really don't know what what might uh, happen next. I will see. Are there any other projects that you're working on currently that you can talk about? We are working on the plaza in front of the criminal high criminal court in Paris, which is designed by Udenza Piano in the in Paris. So it's 9,000 square meters of plaza. We are proposing a very exceptional high lighting ma- hall. That was a competition that we won uh, two, year, two years ago. Yes. Uh, secondly, we are working on the kind of complex of the cultural equipment in French Guiana. So it's in South America. It's on a protected heritage site. So there is existing building going to be transformed to the Maison de Culture at the Memoir. So it's a memory and a cultural center. And then there is a new construction of a contemporary art center and documentary center, Child Garden. Uh, the cinema, cinema complex and cafe. So it might take a long time from now. Now we are the phase of uh, survey. So another project is a university building in the south of France. So it's a there's student uh, building and the professors' rooms kind of complex, and there is also the in between space. That's a five million budget construction, and the, in in French Guiana it's about twenty one million budget construction, 23. and the, the twenty three million budgets. And the plaza, I mean, all the data are uh, you can see it on the website actually. If you if you are interested in right and and the last one which is a, a project that we really loved but unfortunately has stopped for because of the, the the government was running out of money so mm-hmm. but it was it is a theater it's another competition we won against Christian de Portland Park and uh, what's the name of the, the Spanish the Barozzi Vega that I, I guess you know the, the Barcelona architect team. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that, that project we won two years ago, three years ago, and it was 800 seats theater in Beauvais, which is one hour from Paris. Wow. Well, thank you for, for joining us to uh, talk during this undoubtedly very busy time for you. Uh, and congratulations again on the win. Thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, we're, we, uh, we really love the design of the project and we're, uh, we're looking forward to seeing it built one day. Yes. <laughs> thank you. All right. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, so that was my conversation with Nicholas Moreau and Hiroku Kusunoki. I really enjoyed talking to them. They they seem to be very humble and excited about their work. One thing I really found interesting from that conversation was their comments about how the French system sets up a pretty high standard when it comes to competitions, yet they still were very much attracted to the Guggenheim-Helsinki competition because of the opportunities that it brought to them that they felt were very rare opportunities to have as a young practice. Yeah, I was so happy to hear them talk about how they are very conscious for, about their web presence and their general media presence for how they present their work. Because a lot, oftentimes you'll hear firms who say, you know, we don't really, we don't have a PR firm that represents us. We don't, or we don't put this on our website because X. But for Maron Kusunoki, they made quite clear that the reason why they have a pretty limited web presence and didn't solicit any press really up until this point was not because they feel that they shouldn't have to market themselves or that it's somehow ideologically against their 
role as architects, but instead that they just didn't want to force a precedent on themselves or force a restrictive idea of what their firm was capable of or the kind of projects their firm does by putting out an extremely rich web presence that might have like pigeonholed them for future projects. So it, it was able to kind of keep them thinking about their own work a bit more freely. Yeah, that was really interesting. I It actually reminded me of back when I originally started Arconnect back in 1997. And the work that I was showing was mostly my fellow student work when I was at SciArc. And one thing I, I noticed back then was was that the most talented students that had the most interesting work to share were the most resistant to actually publish it because they knew that they were early on in their career trajectory or they hadn't even started their careers and they were so scared of establishing themselves with work that they knew they might not be proud of in the future. And I got the sense that Nicholas and, and uh, Hiroko feel that they have a long way to go. In, in their own work and establishing their own identity. They're both coming from architecture firms that have very strong identities in the architecture world. And it seems like they're probably struggling to identify themselves distinctly from their predecessors. And they're 35 yeah, or 30. They're so amazing. Yeah, yeah. Plenty, plenty of years to go. <laughs> Well, that was one of the nice things about their their site, uh, looking at their work. It, there wasn't a whole lot of, at least from their site, again, knowing that they cultivate their own image, uh, their sense of who they are as architects. So it's hard to understand if whether or not they've actually built a lot. But at least from their website, it, it at least demonstrated that they hadn't built a lot, but that they were really focused on the, the projects that did get built were very, very elegantly constructed and conceived and presented. And even the work that they talked about that they was stopped, um, you can see such promise in that. So it was really wonderful to hear fresh voices winning a competition of this nature. And at the same time, I couldn't, you know, be a little bit fearful of them winning this competition and knowing how horribly it's received in the home country where it's going to be cited. And it kind of, I hope only think good things come from this if whether or not it gets built and that it doesn't change how their future is because their work is just just quite beautiful. And, um, and I hate to see something not get constructed be something that somehow haunts them, you know, again, since they've been so purposeful in how they presented themselves. Especially in regards to how much respect they have for Helsinki as a as a city and Finland as a country and, and, and the people and how they made this project so much for the citizens of Helsinki as a public space. It would be interesting to see a survey across large scale public or not public or private, but dominant projects and cities just to kind of gauge the general overall public reaction to projects. What I'm assuming is that the more bland and more boring the project, the more universal acceptance there is. Or so, that most people are just like, eh, whatever. <laughs> yeah. It's either it's either meh or no. Yeah, exactly. Very rare zealotry. Yeah. All right. Moving on to our next interview. About a month ago, I met up with Paris-based artist Xavier Vialhon and his Los Angeles uh, collaborator and project organizer, Francois Perrin, at uh, MOCA for the book launch and party of the newly published book, Architectones Art in the Living Environment, which documents the Architectones series that he put together between the years of 2012 and 2014. They're site-specific installations in modernist landmarks uh, around the world. Three of the of the houses that he installed in are, are here in LA. And it's really, really beautiful work, extremely talented artist. So it was it was a real pleasure to to talk with him. So let's listen to that now. So is it correct to assume that the publication of this book is representing the completion of the Architecton 
serious? As as soon as a book can represent architecture and experience in spaces, but it is definitely a key element to me about this uh, series of exhibition, and I'm very happy to see it completed today. And um, I think it's also nice to there is a documentary that has been made that will we show some 15 minutes of it tonight, tonight. and that uh, also. Uh, a good thing to explain the most about the process of the making of the shows, but the book is showing beautiful images of the architecture and of the shows, and also there is a kind of a historical part and uh, some contribution from writers also, which uh, adds something to the project. So, is there a guiding reaction or a provocation you're trying to stage with uh, the architectural interventions that you've done? Well, I'm not a provocative artist because I, I just try more to uh, catch the essence of uh, the real. I, I try to catch a certain uh, strength that, are, that is around me and especially with the architecture. And the idea is more to try to find what these strengths could be today. That we've been a long way from a starting point of uh, modernity, which is more in the to me, like in the 20s. And so it's almost uh, 100 years. And it's it's a more of a question why, as an artist born in 63, I'm so fascinated with the modernity, and uh, which is objectively uh, more of a failure because it didn't happen the way it was expected, or it didn't happen at all, like for the... Um, for example, case study houses uh, were meant to be pattern or templates to something that didn't happen in a large scale. But the idea is spread like the, in the design, in the in the in some of the forms that people are living daily with are coming from modernity. But uh, we all live in places that are a certain heritage from this history of modernity, but also that escape this, uh, the, the, the big ideas of modernity, the statement of modernity. So speaking of uh, modernity, um, how did you choose the sites for the Architecton series? Well, I, I'm, it's it's a combination of uh, what I wanted to do and where I wanted to do it with uh, some contingency and some people didn't want me to... For example, the first house I wanted to make something, the first people I got in touch were the owner of the uh, row house by uh, Tadawondo in Osaka. It's a very small house and people are living in it and every second day there is somebody buzzing at the uh, their door to, uh, to try to sneak yeah. in and so they are pretty tired of it. So they, it was like a no-no from scratch. Also, I had the support of um, Tadawondo to get access to the house. So it's not like I have a list and I'm doing it. It's uh, from from the wish list. We try to uh, to make a kind of ideal list, but the list is made by people accepting to take part or not. So it's also through François that took me to some places, especially in L.A. And, for example, the uh, VDL, I I was very interested in it first. And then I 
I got there and uh, Francois showed me things around and taught me about the history of architecture in a way that I was, I've been more interested in, for example, Schindler and Frank Langdorite, Frank Langdorite, which wasn't my taste originally and which are more and more interesting to me today. So the history of these houses turned you around. It made you more interested in, in working with this type of architecture. Yes, but uh, the thing is that I had, uh, first I went through, uh, I visited those houses through little movies that I could find on the internet or photographs and books. And I've been through a lot of books. But then the experience of um, of showing in the house is more being confronted to the contingency, as I said before, but also to the people. So it's not like uh, I've been expecting being having a dialogue with the spaces. And actually, it never really happened like I, I thought it would be. But more, it was more with um, meeting people and having some very like uh, small anecdotes of people living in the house. Like when I met uh, Raymond Notra, the son of uh, Richard Notra, that told me about his experience as a kid living in this house. And this was actually more interesting that uh, maybe a certain idea that is built after the architecture, like uh, something written in the 80s or 90s is maybe less interesting than the experience of a kid living in the house in the 60s. Do you see your interventions affecting the um, the history of these houses in any way? No, because, I mean, my intervention are pretty light and are not, uh, there is no, there is not an ambition to change the history. It's more like what is funny to see is that I, I got to, I could sneak in some of the places with the support of uh, friends or people connected to uh, the interest or love for architecture always the support of the owner of the house, for example. But most of these places are really in a kind of a turning situation from places that has been, that can be, uh, that can be uh, destroyed to places that are no preserved and listed. And some like the Eames house, for example, is like under a globe of glass, <laughs> I would say, like, uh, and uh, to preserve everything. And it's questioning the idea of the autonomy of the architecture because to me, the architecture is a kind of a interacting object with the environment. And for example, it's very interesting to see all the houses I've been working with at the time where they were constructed because they were completely in an environment completely different than it is today. So my goal is more to follow the evolution of this environment and possibly change the angle of visions that people will have on the architecture and maybe also not focus on the architecture, but looking at something within a frame, within a space that is making the vision different. So it's more like activating the architecture as a device, either a living device or an exhibition device. So can you talk a little bit about the research um, or the process of deciding which uh, style of intervention you're going to uh, apply to each of, of the sites that you've chosen? Yeah, sure, but it's, it's not one type of intervention because, for example, when Raymond Notra told me about his father driving through Los Angeles 
sleeping in a car or laying in a car and his wife driving and him having his sketchbook on his chest and trying to escape the vision of the architecture that he thought was very ugly in LA. So this this led me to a type of piece that I haven't foreseen and that is not my style even so but uh, some of the pieces also came from for example at the VDL from the fact that um, I moved in with my family and we have, I have three kids and as Notra had and uh, so there, we had a kind of game like replaying the Notra family in the house and living there and we cleaned the house and we uh, bought some uh, plates and dishes and uh, plants for the garden and so and it's it's you know like it's it's more like activating a, a system than to uh, just look at it and um, at some point also some narrative that i got from the owner that's what we the performance is based on tonight with uh, James Goldstein, who explained me, for example, that he, the reason he bought the uh, Sheets residence at the time was because he had this greyhound dog, Afghan dog, that he needed to exercise. He needed to exercise because he had the dog in an apartment. And so he wasn't especially, apparently he wasn't especially interested in the architecture. <laughs> but so, so one of the most iconic houses in, in the world was bought for the owner's dog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but for example, there is many examples like the Sheets residence wasn't completed the way Lotner wanted it because the uh, couples that uh, acquired it and order, ordered it uh, split it. And they went broke or they didn't have the energy or the money to put in the house. And when Jim Goldstein bought the house back and started to fix the house, he had to meet the architect and they went along quite well. And for Lotner, he looked at it as an opportunity to complete the work that was that he thought would be never ended the way he wanted it. And today he's expanding the house to things that, to additions that are not by Lotner because Lotner died, I think, in 92 or something. And since then he has working and working. He had uh, like workers in the house and uh, scaffolding like always. And now he's expanding on this other part, even sawn down a part, a, a Lotner building that was in the middle of the two lots. Mm -hmm. That apparently Lotner wasn't very much, uh, didn't like, mm -hmm. but that's Jim Goldstein saying that. So, <laughs> yeah, so that's interesting to see how the big story of architecture is also confronted to things that are like, is that like uh, not very like uh, noble, noble, uh, noble, noble. Mm -hmm. Like for example, you can buy a Craig Elwood house for very little money because it's uh, it's on the street and there is no there's only one car part and no swimming pool mm -hmm. so the people that want to buy this type of house they want to have a certain higher standard of living you know so it's it, it also the price of the uh, land is making made that in the 80s most of those houses house, house has been destroyed because the land was more valuable than the house so and it's still the case there's still like many property in LA or iconic house even from Neutra that were about to be destroyed and people you know prevented that at the last minute and but they they had to find millionaires if not billionaires client 
able to buy the property and renovate it to, in, in the right way. Yeah. You know? So um, speaking of, of preservation, were there any issues that came up during the uh, interventions that required that you be especially careful with uh, protecting the integrity of the architecture? In the project in Los Angeles, it was kind of not too difficult, I would say. We have a few stories about that because from scratch, from the beginning, it's very difficult. And you know that you won't nail something on the, in a Notra or, or Koenig house. But then once you're there, you can move things that you haven't thought that would be possible. And for example, I remember at the uh, Schietz-Kolstein residence, when Duncan Nicholson uh, supervised the, the architect of the house, we were like uh, thinking about putting a very big load on the roof in order to attach something without drilling into the concrete. And uh, after a while, he said, well, let's just like, let's do it. And, uh, so, so we were like almost like, no, 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 <laughs> we shouldn't. But, but actually, it's very, it's small holes. And then you put concrete again back, back there and that's fine. And it's also questioning what you can, uh, what kind type of alteration you, it's worth doing to, for example, the kitchen in the house or, you know, like, or the heating system. If, if it's changing and you go solar, for example, you should deal with that kind of issue or you, you should be able to change the, like Koenig and, uh, Rotner did, I think in the, in both houses. They change the kitchen because you can't have a plant like in the 60s in a, in a place that you really live in. So what is, so there is a, a blur limit in what you can do and what you can't do to follow the evolution of uh, living, you know. And um, so that's, that's interesting also to see that, um, for example, a uh, small anecdote on the video is that I was asking David and Sarah, the people taking care of the house, about the many materials that I saw. And David explained me that at the moment that uh, Neutra rebuilt the house, he was very famous established architect and he was dealing with a lot of different companies and that each of the company gave him some materials for free. Mm. But he had to show them. So one of the reasons there is so many different materials in the house is because he just had to show kind of sample of them. So, wow. And this part of the history of architecture is to me almost more important than the, the, the more noble part. Mm. I'd like to talk about your professional relationship with you, uh, Francois, working on Architectons with Xavier. As an architect who's been involved in, uh, as a curator in this project, have these interventions changed the way that you've seen these iconic structures? Yes, yes. I mean, I, I, was, I had a previous experience of um, curating a show 10 years ago on the architectural work of Yves Klein, a French artist who's dead, but very important artist of the 20th century. And uh, the show took place in the, in the Schindler House that's run by the Max Center. Very iconic place, both as an important house in LA, but also space for contemporary art and architecture. And maybe one of the only space in the city where you have this exhibition about art and architecture. And um, I really enjoyed working in this environment uh, and also seeing that, that a house, iconic as it is, is 
better preserved when there's something happening in it, like the Max Center organizing lectures, performance, film series, and exhibition. And uh, and it became even more clear when we work on the the three project in LA with Xavier, seeing that you know place like the Neutra Vidier became more alive when the the show happened and when you now they're doing every summer on an exhibition and there's more and more even taking place in the house and and I think that that show and that experience with Xavier showed me that uh, the best way to preserve architecture is to to bring life into it whether through contemporary art or others you know academic experience uh, lecture series uh, and and trying to preserve architecture without doing anything is is way more complex so uh, i read that that project with xavier opened my eyes to to that aspect i mean architecture is a is a living thing and the best way to preserve it and keep it alive is to keep it busy and keep life happening into it so uh, xavier um your previous work also engages with the notion of icon celebrity mm-hmm do you feel like there's a relationship between how you relate to icons of music versus icons of architecture? <laughs> well, both both things are kind of a limit to me uh, because I'm a visual artist and the, architect, the architecture and the music are starting where my, uh, my field is ending. So it was also one of the reasons I wanted to deal with the architecture is because as an installation artist, you end up where the wall start or you can destroy the wall or you can attach something to it but uh, and with the music it was a little bit the same but it's also there is a you know for me uh, this room is uh, not uh, drawing made three-dimensional it's a certain volume of air and of transparency and the music is a little bit the same is more of a vibration and uh, the complete abstracting of music is fascinating to me, like uh, because it has a very uh, well recognized impact when you have people dancing or just listening to the radio in their car, and so it's 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 a very conceptual thing because it's only a vibration in the air, but it's it's transporting a lot of affects and a lot of uh, of uh, emotions and a lot of meanings. So um, is this way also are related to the art because it's about ideas and about the concept also it's transported by shapes so to me one aspect was that was important in the architecture series was to always be able to see the architecture and sometimes even better than when nothing happened in the house so i wanted to preserve a certain transparency and always like kind of possibilities that you could make like uh, iPhone shots without having something right in the middle blocking the view. So it was the same for my show in Versailles. So I, I was very fond of having very strong elements that you couldn't miss. But at the same time, you could also enjoy the environment of the Versailles Garden or the architecture and the different houses have been doing things without being annoyed with uh, with something... For example, the large raised installation are very transparent as are they are more indicating something pointing something about the architecture uh, they kind of uh, invite people to see new angles, but in a way that is not 
blocking anything, but more like uh, um, giving a new uh, distance or a new point of view on the architecture. So tonight, it's the launch of the book. The title is uh, Architect on Art in the Living Environment. Can you talk a little bit about the making of the book? Yeah, sure. So we had this SPA publishing company based in LA, and this was almost like a natural thing to... I don't remember exactly how it happened, but it's... Well, we... It's people I've known for a long time in Los Angeles, and they exist also through their name as Commonwealth project. They have been producing exhibition, books, films with artists and museum institution here. And uh, when we did the first Architecton three years ago at the, the VDL, they helped us into uh, extending the project through the billboards in LA. And uh, we had that when they were still digital billboard in the city. Actually, that was the last year. And we were able to, in between the streaming of commercial, having uh, image of the project. And they also produced a, a five-minute movie that was uh, shown on the New York Times magazine uh, website. So we're both like very happy of, you know, their intervention in the, in the project. And, and, and Xavier asked them to uh, publish a, a book. And I helped as an editor to be in between Xavier Studio in Paris and their structure in uh, Los Angeles. So I helped um, pick like a series of uh, writer like Yann Tumlier, uh, a local art critic, and uh, Jean-Louis Cohen, uh, who's an architectural historian based in New York. And we're presenting the book tonight. The thing is that um, the size of the show and the fact that it's spread around the world makes that only François and the documentary filmmaker and myself have seen all of them. So it's very important that uh, somebody is like connecting all those locations, all those experiences through a book or through a uh, internet. Like, uh, so it's, it's also due to the size of the places. Some are completely private. Some even went for 24 hours. Some are even a few hours at the 21, for example. And some are more like, uh, normal, I would say normal exhibition, like the one at the Cité Radios in Marseille that went for three months. And that, uh, so it's very important to have the possibility to have a support of a company like Commonwealth that is, uh, helping spreading the uh, images and the content of the show too. And that's still what we're working, working on because I end up the project after seven different shows. But, um, but for example, I would love to make something in uh, Luis Barragan a studio and house in Mexico City. And, um, and I think uh, all the work that we've been doing on the different location is also, could be also the basis of a new type of, uh, of uh, experience because I was very keen in all of this uh, exhibition never to be like uh, artist in residency or in a exhibition program. I was like crossing with a diagonal, like for example, at the uh, Barcelona Pavilion. There is some exhibition and I met this program, but, uh, and I got included in it, but through the architecture and series that was like most of the exhibitions are like the one at the Menikoff house or like, uh, the, the three exhibition in LA weren't included in any program. But we're like, uh, 
self-initiated and supported by my studio and founded also by my studio. So it's pretty important, for example, that the exhibition is leading to not using a space, but changing the space in a good way. For example, the VDR, we had a few trees cut down and uh, after some discussion with the people running the house, and I uh, gave some money through a piece that was sold during the show, a piece of the show that was sold to uh, fund the uh, restoration of the pools. And um, when I'm coming to LA, I'm staying in the house like a guest, and it's also a great part of it. It's like it, it's 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 a, like a, a long-term relationship, not a one-night stand. <laughs> Not what I stand with architecture. <laughs> so, um, are we going to be able to see the uh, the documentary outside of the presentation tonight yes. at MoCA? Where, uh, where are we going to be able to see that? It's not clear yet, but uh, I would I would say because it hasn't been sold to any of the TV program, or mm-hmm. but maybe Netflix or something like that. I don't know because I'm not in charge of it. I'm more. The, subject Mm -hmm. but uh, i would love i mean i'm helping developing it and i want definitely this to be seen because it's it's typically the type of movies i would love to see on anybody's work on your work on francois work anybody and the book the book is is beautiful it's really nicely presented Mm -hmm. um, across all of the different projects that you've done in Mm -hmm. the series i i noticed it's for sale here at mocha is is it generally uh released now to the public, or is it, is it a great well? Sale? It's just starting from mm-hmm. now, uh-huh. and uh, I don't know exactly where it will be available. But um, yeah, it's um, that's that's we we have to to check. It will be available at you know most of the museum or art, you know, like you know the, the classic place in there, and there's not that many. But uh, yeah, it, it will be. Uh, I mean, coming to the Mocha and the bookstore definitely yeah. is the the best place to get it, but. We'll make sure it's, it, yeah. it's available. And uh, we presented the, the, the book uh, a few months ago in, in Paris. And also if you travel through Paris, you can find it at Xavier's Gallery, Perrotin, in the Marais, and at the Palais Tokyo, where we did the book launch in Paris. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Xavier. And, uh, thank you, Paul. All right. Well, we're back. On to endorsements. Amelia, do you have anything to endorse this week? I do. I have a sober endorsement for a piece that we posted to the news about the late architect Francis Tsai, who we profiled a while back in our Working Out of the Box series. Francis Tsai was trained as an architect at the University of Texas, Austin, and but kind of immediately after getting his degree, decided he wanted to work more in a uh, artistic vein. And he started working, doing design and artwork for video games, films, and uh, the gaming industry. And in general, his work is this really cool combination of kind of sci-fi and fantasy. And he really became a quite successful freelance artist by kind of midpoint of his career. And then tragically in his early 40s, he was diagnosed with um, ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, and became completely paralyzed within a matter of a few years. And at this point, um, as people may remember from the recent Ice Bucket Challenge charity thing that went around a a few months ago, that there really is no cure for ALS. And people who are diagnosed with it usually 
don't um, survive for more than three to five years. So despite this quite dire diagnosis, Francis Sy, in order to continue drawing, and as we detailed in the working out of the box piece, he developed this new technique for drawing with his eyes, where using this infrared tracking technology was able to have his eye movements tracked and translated into commands for various computer drawing softwares. And not only is the his use of the technology just absolutely incredible and allowed him to pretty much continued drawing in his signature style, more or less undisrupted. But it also just was amazing to hear his story and and have a short interview with him um, when we first spoke to him back in the working out of the box feature about how he continues to work and his very positive and just keep on keeping on attitude about um, about his work and his ability to just keep on doing it with this new technology. So he passed away this past April, which we were very sad to hear about. And we recently found um, another piece that kind of takes another stab at profiling him and touches on a little bit more about how he's able to work, which we posted to the news. So that is Francis Sai, trained as an architect and um, artist. Ken, what about you? Do you have anything to endorse this week? Yeah, I have a, another news piece that just went up uh, recently, and it also connects with a previous uh, Archonnect Sessions episode. So when the Ray Bradbury home was uh, taken down, the organization, the reuse people, recycled the uh, lumber and turned it into a limited set of uh, bookends. It was, uh, I think, a set of 451 rustic bookends, as it's quoted, and an obvious nod to uh, Bradbury's famous work. Apparently, all the bookends have been uh, unfortunately sold out, so uh, there's no chance of any of us getting one. But uh, some of the funds are going to go for reconstruction of uh, Bradbury's home office and maybe to buy out uh, Tom Maine so he doesn't build his house there. Um, no, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. But some of it going to uh, the university, uh, Indiana University's uh, Bradbury studies. But So I thought that was kind of a nice little tie-in as well to a previous episode. I loved that news. Also that it was particularly Tom Maine's initiative that the house was deconstructed as carefully as it was to be able to conserve all this lumber. And I don't, I'm not sure how he, if he was involved at all with, with turning it into the specific bookends, but that the deconstruction firm, this reusing firm, was able to turn the material into this pretty, pretty great homage to the, to the author. And while there will be no official preservation or like notice on the site that Ray Bradbury lived here, I think, yes, as, as you mentioned, Ken, it's like a fitting nod to be able to use these funds in a reconstruction of the office space to kind of give a physical presence to the space that he was creating these books in. Does anyone else have any uh, endorsements, Dad? Or should we wrap it up for this Paris-themed week? I don't really have any endorsements. So not that I don't endorse anything. It's just, uh, I'll pass. Should we uh, read Donna's endorsement? Oh, oh yeah, of course. Yeah. So as Paul mentioned at the top of the show, Donna is not with us this week. She is on a much deserved vacation with her family, but she wanted to pass on a couple of endorsements on her behalf. The first one of which is the Great Lakes, <laughs> which she is having a great time being in the proximity of. And apparently where Uber does not have a single car, which I find pretty hard to believe, but maybe Uber will start to launch in the next phase a water taxi service where they'll just have people on jet skis on the Great Lakes, like willing to cart you from one side, from the Canada to uh, to Michigan. She did clarify. She did clarify. She sent an email. She said that uh, Traverse City has no Uber. Ah, uh, okay. That <laughs> so. makes that makes sense. I, I wish, ah, so she wasn't talking about water taxi Ubers? Uh. So I guess she's spending some time on their land, which they're planning on building. Yes, this and is. It's, a, it's just a, it's a beautiful little tiny little deck that they've got right there on the land yeah. into the lake, which we'll we'll, uh, we'll share a photo of in the show notes. Looks like a very nice place to be right now. I'm jealous. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, 
Thanks to everybody for listening to this long two interview episode. If you have any questions or comments or suggestions, you can reach us at connect at rconnect.com or you can contact us via Twitter with hashtag rconnectsessions. And again, as always, if you enjoy the podcast, we'd love for you to rate and review us on iTunes. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast with your favorite uh, podcast app to automatically get the latest episodes straight to your phone or your iPad or your tablet or your computer or whatever you use. Watch maybe. And that's it for this week. Donna, if you're listening, we hope you're having a good time sipping on bourbon. <laughs> and uh, we look forward to talking to you, Donna, and everybody else next week. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks.